Thank you, and thank you for your uh, warm welcome. feels uh, a real privilege to be able to um, be here and to speak uh, with you uh, this morning. And um, I, I, I haven't been, to, I think I've only been to Oxford once. I went to university in Reading, so we came across occasionally when I was uh, a lot younger, but um, Ellie was here and worshipped, as Keith said, at this church. And uh, so it's great, um, great for us to be here today. And also, um, just getting to know uh, Steve and the, and the team um, as they've been coming up to Sheffield. It's nice to do a return visit. And, uh, and really um, hearing all the great stories of things that have happened here and the journey that you've been on and uh, this building and the school and all, all the other things that have been going on. So it's, it feels really... Uh, I've been really looking forward to come and, uh, and spend some time with you. I was praying about uh, what to speak on and I felt that God wanted me to focus in um, particularly on uh, a coven- the covenantal side um, today of, um, of the kind of movement, I guess, that we're all part of, as we think more and more about how we engage with um, communities that are really living together, um, living li- life on life, and, and engaging in mission, reaching out to folks. Um, I know that we've always done uh, elements of mission, but it's, it's this idea of it becoming a core part of our life. I, I guess we're going through a shift, aren't we, uh, in this country where having had hundreds of years of being Christendom, effectively, um, go back uh, 200 years, and you had to pay a tax, you had to pay a fine if you didn't go to church on a Sunday. Um, those days have long gone, and I think um, the church is now in the UK beginning to catch up with the fact that we live on a mission field, and therefore the, we're missionaries. And we need to learn how to live as missionaries, even when we're living in our hometown, in the place that we've grown up in, or the place that we've settled in, um, it, it's one thing to be a missionary, isn't it, if you go away with a team to somewhere else, to a different culture, to a different land. It's a different thing to be a missionary if you stay in the place that you've been called to originally. And, and, uh, and that's something that is really quite hard to do, but um, we're learning to do together, and we're learning to help each other to do that. And it's been really encouraging to hear the stories of uh, some of the missional communities and some of the things that have been going on here. So I just want to read um, from a little, uh, a short passage in Luke 22 which is uh, the Last Supper, and um, I'm going to read from uh, verse uh, 14. So hopefully, if I press this little device, it will appear up behind me. Nothing yet. I'll try again. There we go. Fantastic. Uh, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And uh, we hear those words quite often, don't we, when we're sharing communion, but it's good sometimes to stop and actually think about what they mean. And uh, and I just want to dig into that whole idea of covenant. Jesus said, uh, this is the blood of a new covenant. And uh, covenant, I guess, is about becoming one with God. We would tend in our church to talk in terms of covenant and kingdom, as if they're the kind of warp and the weft of, of the Christian life. And 
almost, I, I wonder whether you could argue that they're almost the DNA of the Bible, the, 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 the strands that make up the, the DNA of the Bible. Um, you, you find it from the very beginning to the very end, this, this kind of intertwined, dual focus on the fact that we're called to become one with God, on the one hand, covenant, and on the other hand, the, the extension of God's rule into our fallen earth and, and his redemption of the things that have been destroyed and broken. His kingdom, those two things work together. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne, O God, says the psalmist. And um, it would you know, be a very long sermon if I was going to talk about covenant and kingdom. Um, but I, I felt this morning I wanted to focus down on the covenantal side a little bit. And, and um, it's, it's good for us just to have a little bit of the history with covenant. Um, covenant is a, is a um, historical, well, probably a prehistory, a prehistorical basis of society. It's easy for us to forget this now because in our society, we're really, the way that we function is based on law and order. And, um, and you know, if you do something bad to somebody, the chances are quite high that you're going to get caught and you'll get punished. And so that has the restraining effect on society. That's great. It's important to remember that we haven't always had that. If you go back to uh, biblical times and, and before that, um, the basis of society, the basis of being able to function properly, actually le- was less to do with law and order. It was more to do with covenant. Covenant is where two different parties, maybe individuals or even families, um, decide to form an agreement together so that though they are still individuals, they have a shared identity that becomes as if they're one. So really, that's a really kind of profound concept to get our heads around, isn't it? It's something I think that can only have come from God. Uh, God who lives in the Trinity, who are, who's three but is also one. It's almost as if it's an overspill of the very nature of who he is. And, um, and covenant was uh, really important in ancient times. We've seen some of the ancient kind of covenant uh, uh, practices, even uh, in more modern times, when we've engaged with, with uh, people groups who still have lived in kind of Stone Age cultures. So, for example, the uh, Native American uh, culture uh, found that there was the practice of uh, blood brothers, where two different men would, would cut the palms of their hands and they would they would hold hands where they, while they took a vow of friendship to each other so that their blood mingled. And then afterwards, they would take ash from the fire and they'd rub it into the, into the cut so that it formed a visible scar so that people could see from then on. You see it also in some African cultures, uh, covenantal tribal cultures, where people will have the scars on their faces. And someone who's from that culture would be able to look at somebody and immediately know who's their family, who's their tribe, who are they one with. And uh, in, that, in that kind of uh, uh, Native American culture, you might be some rather large warrior who likes to take things away from people and likes to have what he wants. And you might see uh, a skinny little uh, brave over there who doesn't look like he could defend himself much. I think, well, that's quite nice. I quite like uh, his property, and I think I'm going to take it. But if you notice that he has one of those scars on his hands you better find out who's in, who he's in covenant with first. Because he might be in covenant with big t- chief standing bear over there, who's six for eight, and will eat you for breakfast. <laughs> and and um, if you are weak, and if you are small, 
then covenant with a stronger party is a very valuable thing, isn't it? Which, of course, we are in comparison to God. And uh, you see this going all the way through. You see it with Abraham and uh, Abram and Sarai, who when they entered into covenant with God and his identity was shared with them, the consonants of, of the name Yahweh were inserted into their names. So Abraham became Abraham and Sarai became Sarah. And their identity changed, didn't it? But, um, but when, when covenant was made between two parties in these biblical cultures, there are a number of things that had to happen. The first was that there was always a sacrifice. And uh, for Abraham, it was uh, some livestock, which represents your security, doesn't it? I, I guess, I guess the, the sacrificing of a, of a prize calf or heifer is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a real sign of commitment in a culture where you're living in a subsistence kind of manner, where you, you know, the only way that you're going to eat is if you can eat the things that you've got. And so there's a sacrifice there. There was the covenant of circumcision, wasn't there? So there's a scar that uh, accompanies uh, the covenantal, um, you know, it's an outward sign that, that, a covenant, that accompanies that covenantal agreement. Uh, now, of course, we don't, we, we kind of have one remaining major covenant, which is marriage, don't we? And um, we don't tend to have a scar, but we tend to still have an outward sign, don't we? And we all know it. It's the one remaining major kind of covenant in our culture. And if you see someone wearing that ring on that finger, you know that, that they have a shared identity with someone else. My ring, following the German tradition, uh, has my wife's name engraved inside it, and her ring has my name engraved inside hers. And, and it's one of the remaining kind of echoes, isn't it, of what once was the foundation of society. I love those marriage vows. All that I have I share with you, and all that I am I give to you, you say to each other. You were two separate individuals, and now although you keep your, your rights as an individual, you become in your identity as if you're one. It's great, isn't it? I, uh, so you have the sharing of property, you have uh, the sharing of identity. I don't know about you, but uh, I always struggled to understand the justice of the cross as I grew up. I grew up in a, in a church, Christian parents, and learned all about the cross, and I learned about the substitution of the cross and how I'd sinned, but Jesus took my sin upon himself, and therefore I didn't have to be punished. And I thought that was good. I mean, yeah, I understood that was a good thing for me. But I've got to confess to you, I never quite understood how it was fair. You know? I mean, I remembered there was a time when I was young where I broke my mum's hairdryer. And uh, that was quite bad, because I shouldn't have been playing with it in the first place. But I did something worse. The worst thing was, when my mum blamed my sister, I let her take the blame. And I, I watched her being told off for breaking this hairdryer, and I thought, it might be a good idea not to own up at this point. <laughs> and, um, and I remember, I just felt so ashamed. I must have been about six or seven or something like that, and I, I just felt so ashamed that, I, that I'd let my sister get into trouble... And in the end, I went and owned up. And I got into much more trouble for having let her get into trouble than I had for, you know, doing it in the first place. But, but the thing, I always remembered that when I heard about the penal substitution of the cross. I always thought, that's like the time with my sister. How is it just that Jesus, who did nothing wrong, gets punished, and he takes the punishment for me and I get off? That, that feels nice for me, but it doesn't feel particularly just. And... And it was because I hadn't understood covenant. 
It, once I started to understand covenant, I, I got it completely. Because God says, the thing is, Paul, Jesus isn't another person. He's not another person. You can only be one with him if you, as he said, eat his, his flesh and drink his blood. You and Jesus were separate, but now you're one. You are in Christ. That's why he can be punished for you. The Father doesn't see you in him as a separate person. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's what he's done for you. That's what he's done for me. So covenant, one of the key themes that runs all the way through the Bible, is about becoming one with God. Jesus gives his identity to us, which hopefully will appear up. Uh, Jesus takes our identity on himself, and we become adopted children of God. Paul uses the language, doesn't, doesn't he, all the way through his letters, about us being in Christ. That's covenantal language. That's the language of covenant. You're hidden in Christ. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. How can that be true? I'm not seated in heavenly places. I'm standing here. How can that be true? Ah, but you see, Jesus is seated in heavenly places, and the Father doesn't distinguish between the two of you. So if he is, you are. And the weird thing is, that means he's standing here too. Doesn't it? And he actually confirmed it, didn't he, by sending his Holy Spirit into us. So the very Spirit of Jesus lives in you. It's not just a, it's not just a theoretical reality, it's a spiritual reality. And that's why weird things start to happen when you become a Christian. Those of you that can actually remember the time when you became a Christian, can you remember any weird things that happened? The weird one for me was one my, my mother noticed, which is that I stopped swearing. I, I, I didn't kind of, it wasn't a conscious effort, it just happened. Now, there's all sorts of other battles which take the whole of our lives to work through, but there are often some quite pronounced things that happen when the Holy Spirit moves in, aren't there? So, that's the covenantal picture. And um, if you've been uh, kind of, as you've been engaging with some of the stuff that we've uh, been developing uh, with other churches, um, my guess is that you might have occasionally seen a triangle around. Do you guys, have you guys had all those triangles? Yeah, we get a bit triangled out at St. Thomas's, I've got to admit. Um, uh, but I think, I just, I just love to, it's, it's just a useful tool, isn't it, for remembering all three dimensions. Uh, the, the, where we first developed it from was the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, by the way. Theologically, that's where the triangle came from. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. Up. Love your neighbours yourself in. Go and make disciples. Out. So that, that's, that's why we kind of developed the, we kind of felt if you, if you kind of reduce the essence of being a Christian down to its most basic, it's the great commandment and the great commission, isn't it? And so we've used that triangle a lot, and we use it because we know that in ourselves we tend towards two out of the three. We, uh, in our church, I don't know whether it's the same for you guys, we tend towards up and in. So we like lots of worship, lots of prayer, quite like if we saw some miracles. Uh, we like community, eating together, hanging out, um, and uh, you know, doing the other stuff. The mission stuff is a little bit more tricky, especially if it involves actually talking to someone or challenging somebody about Jesus then, of course, the Englishness begins to take over, doesn't it? But, uh, so we keep the triangle just to remind us about that. But I think there's a, there's a kind of a covenantal triangle which is quite helpful. And that's this. That um, the upward dimension, of course, if it's covenant, is it's that God becomes our Father. If you have said yes to Jesus, like those folks who got baptised today, if you've said yes to Jesus, then you have been adopted and you have a new identity. My father was adopted... So I, my name is uh, McConaughey, my surname, and um, 
I uh, would consider my grandfather to be um, the McConaughey grandfather, but actually my real blood name would be Klingmeyer. And, uh, and my, my blood grandfather is German, but he threw out my father and my grandmother when my dad was very little. And, um, and, a, and an English soldier who was over in Germany in the war met my grandmother and fell in love with her and brought her back to England, and he adopted my father. And so now he's a McConaughey, and I'm a McConaughey. And I totally own that. That's my identity. It's the same for you. If you've, been, if you've said yes to Jesus, God the Father has adopted you, and you have the heavenly name. That's who you are. You're, he's our Father. And, and our identity is given to us by our Father, isn't it? I think there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of foolishness around that sounds wise, that, that makes it sound as if you can, you, can, you can get an identity by looking with inside yourself. You know, I, we were talking about on the way down about uh, Big Brother, and somebody said, why did you go on Big Brother? To, to one of the contestants said, I thought, I thought if I went on Big Brother, I, I'd find out about my identity, I'd find out about who I am. The thing is, and it's something we often miss, I think, in our Western society, identity is not something you find in yourself. Identity is something that's given to you by others. Yeah? It's, it's the people around you who give you identity. And primarily, it's your parents in the first instance. And if your parents have failed to give you a good identity, then the good news is that your father comes, your heavenly father, and he gives you a new identity. And so identity is something that is bestowed upon you. He says, I've seen you, I know that you're broken, I know that you're sinful, I know that you're a failure. I often think that the relationship of God to each of us must be very like the relationship that we can sometimes see between a parent and someone who's become uh, a, a, a serious drug addict. You know, um, they kind of still love their parents, but they're just incapable of being able to interact with them properly. And, and when they say to them, uh, when they say to their parents that, that you can trust me, I'll do this or I'll do that, the parents know jolly well that they probably can't trust them. But does, do they stop loving them? No. Do they stop persevering? No. Would they disown them as a child? No. Why? Because they love them. They're, they're their parent. Well, to be honest, we're a little bit like that with God, aren't we? How many promises have you broken? I've broken hundreds. You know. But God knew that when he took me on, and he knew it when he took you on, and he still chose you. It says, doesn't it, doesn't it in the Bible, that he foreknew you. He foreknew you, and yet he still chose you. Isn't that great? And so he's chosen you, and he's given you an identity... And it's because of that identity, it's because you've been given that identity for free by God, third try, there we go, that you um, choose to obey him. And, and so it becomes something that we want to do. I want to obey you, God, because I love you and I love your ways and I know that your ways are right and I know that if I obey you, I'm walking in the straight paths and I know that those straight paths are going to take me home to you and I know that if I walk with you, my life will impact lots of other people's lives for good as well. I want to obey you. But often we go around that the wrong way, don't we? Yeah? How many, how many of us think that we can earn our identity in God by being obedient? If you try and do that, you get yourself into real trouble. If you've grown up in a, some sort of legalistic environment, it probably hasn't been taught to you overtly, but they will have been an implication. Or if you've got parents who, as you were a child, only used to give you positive feedback if you did well you know there's this kind of thing about needing to prove yourself you don't have to prove yourself with God you don't have to Uh, I know we're going back a bit now but um, 
uh, how many people have seen that um, that old? Um, I guess it's a chick flick. Um, Jerry Maguire. Who's seen Jerry Maguire? That film. Do you remember that? Do you, do you remember that? That there's that woman, the, the woman in there, um, Renny Zellweger. She, she she falls in love with him, and and they come to the. It comes up to this crucial kind of scene where she gives him all of these reasons why he should be in a relationship with her. And she's, been, she's the only one who's been loyal to him. She stayed with him all the time. She stayed by his side when everyone else went against the vision that he had to, to, have, a good, to have a life that was based around being good, basically, and investing properly in people. And, um, and everyone else deserted him, and she stayed, and she gives him this long speech to, to persuade him why he should be with her. And, and, he says, and he looks at her, and he says to her, at the end of the long speech, he said, you didn't have to say any of that. You had me from the very first word. Yeah? Well, God's like that with us, isn't he? We don't have to earn it. We don't have to prove it. If we start doing that, we get ourselves into big trouble. So, Father gives us our identity. And because we have an identity, then we can start in our faltering, stumbling way, start to walk out in obedience with him. So that's really important. That's the covenantal reality of our life in him. But what I wanted to talk a little bit to you guys about um, this morning was how that works, not just for us individually, but how it works for us corporately as a community. And um, the Father gives us our individual identity, but that identity is a family identity, isn't it? If you are a child of God, an adopted child of God, and if everyone else is as well, then they are all our brothers and sisters. Just have a look around. I know it's not very English. These people, some of them you know well, some of them you don't know very well, but the reality is every single one of them are your family. It's a weird thought, isn't it? Now, some of you are not looking very happy about that. Is that a problem? <laughs> not only are they your family, they're your eternal family. You are going to know these guys forever. Kind of puts into perspective in terms of us needing to make sure we're right with each other, doesn't it? Yeah? And... One of the real things that's happened for us in our church over the last 20 years, one of the things that God's really been calling us to, is basically this. He's been saying, you guys, I've chosen you, I love you, I've given you my name, you're my family. Now, I want you to live like it. I want you to live as if you're an extended family. I don't want you to live as if you're a load of busy individuals who, because you have a faith, occasionally meet together to do programmatic activities. My word's not God's, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I want you to live as an extended family. And, um, and family is, a, is such an important thing, biblically, and the, the biblical picture of family is very different from our picture. Our picture of family tends to be the nuclear family. Mum, dad, 2.4 kids, and so on. That's not the biblical picture of family. When the Bible is talking about family, it uses the word, generally in the New Testament, in the Greek, it uses the word oikos, household. That's talking about mum, dad, kids, uncles, aunties, grandparents, anyone else who's part of that, who lives in the house, who's part of helping the whole thing to run. That's the way that we're supposed to live. You know, it's such a hunger in the hearts of people in our society today to have that, because most of us had it taken away from us. Uh, I don't know how many of you have gone and spent time in the developing uh, countries, but um, folks I know who spent a long time there, uh, in places, in places, parts of Africa and um, Asia, would say, materially those people are much poorer, socially they're much richer. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Because they're living the way that God's designed them to in an extended family, yeah. and, and we've 
we've kind of taken in this kind of poisonous teaching and doctrine without ever realising it that the family is supposed to be just this tiny little unit. And um, it's a really, really important thing for us to get hold of, and it's at the heart of missional communities. So, of course, the context for the family is it's a family on mission. We're in a dying world. We're on a massive mission field. There are millions of other people that God wants in his family too. So that's the context, and that's really important. And it sounds like you guys are really getting that, and you've been fighting that through in your own church. That's great. But it's not just some people on mission. It's a family on mission. Yeah, and we, we, we have to learn how to be family together. And then in terms of the obedience, well, apart from, there are, basically I can only spot two things that Jesus actually said as overt commands when having all the pep talks with the disciples. One was love each other. That kind of fits with family, doesn't it? And the other one was go and make disciples. So in terms of obedience, if we're part of this family, what, what is our family like? What does our family do? Families have traditions, don't they? When Ellie and I got married, one of the nice things was developing our traditions. Um, I've got a German background, um, and so our family celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. Uh, Ellie comes from an English background, and so her family celebrate on Christmas Day. So our kids are pretty lucky. <laughs> they just get both. We celebrate on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day. Why do we do it that way? That's because it's our family. We decide on, on what we do. Well, in our family that we're all in, it's our dad that decides what we do. And one of the things he says is, we're a family on mission, guys. There'll come a time where the mission is over, but I'm not willing that any should perish. And I'm not willing that any should remain lonely and lost and an individual stuck on their own. I, want, I love them, I made them, I want them in our family, and I want you to get them. That's what he says to us, doesn't he? Now, I don't know about you, of all the five-fold ministries talked about in Ephesians 4, uh, evangelist is my least good one. I absolutely hate doing evangelism. To be honest with you, I don't like it when people do it to me. And I also don't like it when I have to do it to other people. But, um, but the point is, not necessarily that we all have to be evangelists. I mean, you know, respect to, evan- to evangelists. My wife's an evangelist. Uh, they are amazing. But there aren't that many of them. And put your hand up in here if you think you're an evangelist. Just out of interest. Go on, put it up so that we can see. You shouldn't be shy if you're an evangelist. You, there's not many, are there? Most of us are not them. Yeah? That's two things. One is, we've got to make sure we really get the evangelist connected with everyone and helping everybody. But secondly, it's not just about evangelism. It's about discipleship. It's about discipling people, isn't it? So I just want to talk, just as we um, come near the end of this time, I just want to talk um, some indicators for me about what family, real family is and what discipleship is. And then I'll finish. So family, the word oikos, meaning household, means extended family. And... Um, what do families do? Uh, these are just some things I've noticed in our missional communities. We've got about 120 missional communities now. We're, the, the process has grown. We're going through a very similar process with you, to the one that you guys are going through, but we're a few years down the line. And what we've seen is that the momentum has built and built and built. It's getting very excited. It's exciting. On average, in the last five years, we've seen between 350 and 400 people uh, joining those missional communities a year. And, um, and those people are folks who are not previously... Over 90% of them are not from a church background, not previously church. It's been quite exciting. Yeah. And you can imagine, logistically, quite a struggle. <laughs> it's great. And, and did it, it didn't happen overnight. What happened was that momentum gradually built as we got it, and we, start, we just kept doing it. But there were two things. One was we had to learn how to be family, and the second one was we had to learn how to disciple people. Yeah. 
And for the things I've noticed with the 120 or so missional communities across Sheffield now, the ones that really work like family, they don't all. Some of them are just groups that meet up once a week. But the ones that really work like family, they pray together regularly. I don't just mean when they meet once a week, they have a little bit of a prayer meeting. I mean, there's ongoing prayer going through the week. Yeah, We've got folks who are at work in different workplaces who will ring each other at lunchtime for 10 minutes on their mobile phone to pray together. For the people of peace that they've met at work, that both of them know who, who each other's are. We've got people praying every day. We've got uh, folks praying every morning together. We've got folks praying all the time. Lots of praying together. So they pray together. They uh, eat together. Really key, take food out of the Bible. Take food and miracles out of the Bible. There's not an awful lot left, is there, in the New Testament. So it's really important. So eating together regularly. Again, um, even if it's just a once a week meeting, then eating together is really key. Uh, not every community that eats together has really had breakthrough, but every community that has had breakthrough for us do eat together. Wow. Yeah. So it's not the one thing that guarantees it, but it seems to be an essential ingredient. And, uh, and most, a lot of our guys in the real family ones, the ones that are really working well, don't limit that to once a week either. So there's lots of going into each other's houses, eating together, because it has to be life on life, doesn't it? Yeah. If we get our heads around missional communities as a new kind of group, a bit like small group but bigger, we're never going to get it. Right. We have to get our heads around missional communities are us trying to live out the reality that we are extended family. Yes. That's what we're trying to do. Yes. Yeah. So who has access to your home? How often? Uh, how often do we eat together and pray together? Another one would be to do mission together, of course. Sometimes that's particular missional activities. Sometimes it can be just something like the fact that people in different workplaces are really trying to identify who's the person of peace. Who's the, I'm referring there to Luke 10, that Jesus sent them out to people of peace. Who are the people who welcome me, listen to me, serve me? Who are the people who want to know Jesus in me? The great release for me as a non-evangelist was... I've always got the same agenda as anyone I'm talking to about Jesus. If they don't want to know, I don't want to tell them. If they do want to know, I do want to tell them. It's the people of peace principle. It's very releasing if you're non-evangelist. If you're, if you're an evangelist, you won't care. You'll just tell them anyway. That's fine. <laughs> so do mission together. Have fun together. Really important. If it's only meetings, that's rubbish. Who wants a life made up of just meetings? Yeah? So what do you like doing? Let's do that together. We've got one missional community um, that basically, I, I mean, they were a bit naughty, really, I think. They basically love being in the Peak District. We're on the edge of the Peak District. And they said, um, we want our mission to be people who like being in the Peak District. It's not rocket science, is it? And so they said, um, our missional communities come in generally once a month to our central services. And the other three, they go out and do their missional community stuff on a Sunday. And so they said, this is what we're going to do. We'll meet at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning with our families and we'll have breakfast together. And we'll pray and do some, read the Bible together and do some Bible study stuff. And we'll also pray for all the members of our community that don't yet know Jesus, who aren't there at that point. And then at 10.30, we all meet up at a prearranged place in the, in the Peak District. And, um, and uh, about half of that group that meet up are people who are not churchgoers. And they know it's a church group and they know all that, but they just have a great time. It's a great community to be part of. They want to do it. And then they tend to split into three small groups. And the three small groups are people who like rock climbing, people who like walking, and people who like water sports. Yeah? And um, families sometimes split among those three. And then they basically have fun all morning. And then they meet back together for lunch. And in the summer, they have a picnic. In the winter, they'll go to a cafe place. And, um, and they have two rules. One of the rules is no one can talk about church. The other rule is we must all talk about Jesus as much as if it was only Christians there. Yeah? And on the once a month when they come in, 
they said to me, okay, if we've got to come in once a month, we don't really want to because we're having more fun, but <laughs> if we have to come in once a month, fair enough, can we be the welcome team? And I said, why do you want to be the welcome team? And they said, well, if someone's coming to church for the first time, we want their first experience to be there standing at the door welcoming everyone else in. Now that group, you know, um, in, in one year, last year, about 40 people in the group, it's not, you know, we're not talking about hundreds falling down under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but that group in one year saw eight people come to faith. Yeah? It's great, isn't it? So, so it's, it's having fun together. And the other one, which is pretty challenging, I'd say, is some way of sharing resources. I mean, read Acts 2. It's kind of difficult to have a biblical idea of family and community without... I mean, they shared everything. And I'm not saying that we should jump straight in there. Um, we're English, after all. Um, but I, my experience is that the ones that really work have some sort of shared resources. Even if it's just, I don't know, a geographic community, a, a neighbourhood community sharing a, a couple of lawnmowers, or sh- people sharing a car, or we share a garden with our next-door neighbours who are from our church. We took the fence out and we just made it one garden. Or There's something important in family... Because you share resources with family, don't you? Yeah. We've got missional communities who have put a bank account in, so they've, got some, um, so they've got some emergency money for some of the folks who are struggling financially amongst them if they need it. You know, it's, uh, there's lots of different ways to do it, but some sort of shared resources. So where are you guys with your missional communities? Have you got to this stage, or are you still at the point where it's basically a meeting with a slightly bigger group that does the same sort of things you used to do, but now you do a bit of evangelism too? If that's what you're doing, you're not quite there yet. Because God wants us to have a life that's a whole life that we enjoy, that we have with our family. Yes. Yeah? Yes. And then, um, beginning to run out of time now, but just very quickly, the other word is disciple. The thetis, it means learner. Make disciples. And I'll just go through that quickly, but these are the little tips I'd give on that. Okay, thank you. So identify people of peace. That's really important. In our missional communities, our folks are always talking about who are your people of peace. That means people who don't yet know God, but who are open to him. And they might know that they're open to him, and they might not know that they're open to him. If you are here today, and you're not yet, you haven't made that commitment, you're not yet a Christian, but you're here because you're kind of interested, that's what Jesus calls you. You are a person of peace. So I don't know if there are any, any of those here, but if you are, it's great to have you with us, person of peace. That's what Jesus called them. If a person of peace is, is there in the house and they'll invite you in, then just stay with them and just share the good news. These are people you don't have to fight to share the things with them that Jesus is doing in your life. And, and in our missional communities, again, the good ones, the ones that are working well, not only have individuals identified their people of peace, the other people in the community know who their people of peace are by name too and know something about them, and they're praying about them together, praying for them. Help them, Jesus, they're a person of peace. They're open to you, but we want them to really come into the family. We want them in the family, Lord. Yeah, and, and the way that we're taught to help people of peace is not to be benefactors sprinkling our spiritual blessings out of our great bounty yeah, Jesus said don't take a purse don't take a, don't take a staff stay with them, let them feed you it's about vulnerability actually so if you find a person of peace don't try to look like the perfect Christian you know, don't try to win them with the Christian smile even when, t- when times are hard be vulnerable with them, be honest with them be real Christianity, real Christianity, is contagious, but only when you live life on life with somebody. Yeah? So we need to be real with them, but live life on life with them. And if they're living life on life with me, I'm in a family. And so they're going to get to know my family too. 
And you know, probably they don't have an extended family of their own. In some cultures they might, but most people in British culture don't. The advertisers totally get this. I don't know whether you saw the Coke advert at Christmas. They had a bloke walking through his house and had all the different people in his life. They had some music. He said, this is my family. And it was the postman and it was his lecturer from university. And it was, did you see that one? It was quite moving. Um, But the point was that actually all those people are not that close to him. The point to me anyway. And, And people are hungry for family. Well, if people are hungry for family, God wants them to have the best family ever. An eternal family where he's the dad and they're invited to be part of it. And Jesus is their brother. Amazing. So we talk about pathways of discipleship. So we'll actually talk about our people of peace and we'll say, well, John from work, I think he's a real person of peace. The reason I think that is because when I was struggling, out of all the people um, there, he was the one who came and helped me. And... um, and the other day, for the first time, he's going through a difficult time, and I said to him, when I go through a difficult time, I pray, would you like to pray together? And he said yes, and I prayed with him. He's a person of peace, isn't he? Yeah. yeah? So then you're talking to the other members of your family, the other members of your missional community, and you're saying, how can we help John to come in further? That's discipleship, isn't it? Yeah. If he's learning about Jesus, how can we help him? What's the next step? Is the next step that you, Paul, need to um, actually you know, not just be with him at work, but actually hang out with him outside of work? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that probably is the next step. Right, we're going to hold you accountable that you do that. A couple of weeks' time when we next talk, we're going to ask, are you only still hanging out with him at work or have you actually started to become friends outside of work? Yeah? It's just a step at a time, isn't it? It's not rocket science and you don't have to be a master evangelist. It's beginning to live life on life, inviting them into your life, you joining their life, and once they get to know you, they get to know the one who's in you, and they get to know your family. And there comes a point where you might need to say, do you know, it's great that you're with us, that we're praying, that we're doing all those things, that you heard about Jesus. Did you know at some point you actually have to make a decision about this? Is it time? But do you know, that can be the most natural thing in the world if someone's already become part of the family. Yeah. You know? It doesn't have to be the big thing that we Brits are so frightened of. So... Identifying people of peace, being vulnerable, living life on life, together with your family. Being a family, making disciples. I think we often try to make the gospel um, easy, um, but the problem is to do that you have to make it quite complicated. Whereas actually I think it tends to be simple, but hard. It's hard because it sounds great when I'm talking about um, being in a family, but actually there's real sacrifices that you have to make. Because we've grown up and crafted a life for ourselves that's fitted around us meeting our own needs as an individual. I don't know how you've done that. I know lots of ways in which I do that. And actually, if you know that God is calling you to be part of an extended family, then together you have to make some decisions about life. Ellie and I, when we uh, first got married, decided we were going to have people living with us. And we've had people living with us ever since. We've got two at the moment. We had three last year. Share a garden with our next-door neighbours. There are costs associated with that, aren't there? But we, we live in a household. We don't live in a nuclear